Good morning. Remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be in 1 John um, chapter 2, verses 28 to 310. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and that and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Right, if you would have a seat this morning, let me pray over the word as you do and stay there in First uh, John chapter 3. We'll be in it a lot this morning. God and Father, make us vulnerable uh, before your word this morning. Uh, Lord, vulnerability isn't something that we particularly like and we confess that to you, uh, but we need it standing in front of you, you speaking to us. Lord, let the wicked and the unjust uh, stand trembling in front of what you have to say, and for those of us who are sons and daughters of yours, let us be uh, reproved, Uh, let us be encouraged. Uh, Lord, we trust you to say sweet things to us, and hard things as well, and we just ask you that in all of it, uh, Lord, that we would glorify you. So we pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well... I did uh, wrestle with it pretty much all week. I uh, said uh, Sunday and Monday to our leadership team that I was not going to name this sermon, Who's Your Daddy? But I, at 11 o'clock last night, uh, just uh, gave in. There was no better title for this sermon than Who's Your Daddy? And so that is actually what we're going to be talking about this morning. I, like so many of you, are very much uh, like your father. And uh, for uh, all of us, whether regardless of your experience of, uh, of who your father was, some of us had uh, wicked and evil fathers that didn't treat us well, neglected, some were absent. Uh, others of us had uh, wonderful fathers, redeemed fathers, uh, fathers who were Christians, taught us scripture, but still nonetheless uh, had uh, sinful uh, idiosyncrasies. And uh, for all of us, we absorb those things. Uh, God designed us as children to pay attention to our fathers and our mothers. 
and to absorb a lot of those things. And so we took the good and the bad. Um, and I'm standing in a season of life where I get to see it both ways. Um, I'm 38 years old, and uh, I've uh, really dropped all of the pretenses that I had in middle school and high school where there was some sort of face that I was like giving the world that was not truly who I was. I was acting something out early in my career in college. There were things that I wanted to portray to the world, but that's exhausting. It's tiring. You get into your late late 30s and 40s, and you just go, this is just it. This is who I am. Like, I'm going to stop trying to put on a face for everybody. And I really, from this vantage point, can see how you get to an elderly age and just your curmudgeony and mean-spirited and unkind. That's not at all what I want, but I can see how it happens, that you just lose those things. And the more that that pretense kind of gets lost, the more of that goes away, the more of my father I start seeing in myself, both the good and maybe some of the weird idiosyncrasies that are just a part of being a tailor man. I, uh, I see it in my son as well. I see it in both of my sons that uh, uh, they are very much like their fathers. They, you know, uh, they, they look at me, they look at my father, um, and, uh, and they look like me. They look like us. Um, I'm seeing it more and more as they continue to walk. The way that I walk is the way that they walk. The way that I selectively hear things is the way that my father selectively hears things and the way that my sons are starting to selectively hear things. The way that I tell stories, the things that I value, these are all things that we get from our fathers. We, we get a lot of things from our fathers. My children kind of suffer from this fate of picking up the, the good with the bad. Um, I, I see myself in them. And, and there is good. There's real, real good. Uh, my great-grandfather was uh, a believer. He was baptized. My grandfather was a believer. He was baptized. My father was a, is a believer and uh, has been baptized. I've been baptized. I'm a believer. My oldest son uh, just recently was baptized as a believer. There are these good things that are actually, we're told in the pages of Scripture, things that we inherit from our fathers. And faith is one of those things at some level. Like we see faithfulness in previous generations. We want to start walking that out. And that's very good. It's very healthy. We get lots of really good things from our fathers, but we also see in scripture that we inherit other things that are not so good. Uh, we inherit sin from our fathers. The fall uh, literally uh, creates sin in the hearts of man. Adam has this sin and the seed of sin, and we're going to talk about that seed of sin, and he passes it through the generations from uh, father to sons and daughters, there are just uh, generations and generations of sin that are literally given from father to generation, from father to generations. And so we see the good with the bad. But what we know in all of this is that fathers really matter. Fathers really matter. The, the world now makes a mockery out of fatherhood. They want to redefine fatherhood. You can't look or see a TV show where the father isn't some, you know, fat doofus, like acting like an idiot. And the wife is always the smart, intelligent, beautiful one. And, uh, and fathers are just, they're lame. They're just around. Like, what do you really have a need for them anyway? That's kind of the message that if you read into it, uh, you can see, and it's plain on its surface, you know, there is some kind of deterioration of what it means to be a good father. But we all know it when we see it. 
But right now we're living in a season, or maybe it's always been this way, where fatherhood is minimized. Scripture, though, tells an altogether different and much more beautiful and amazing story about fatherhood. The heart of the gospel is about a father's love. So when we talk about fatherhood, we really can't get away from the fact that uh, the God the Father has something to say about it. He has something to demonstrate in it, and it is lovely, it is good, it is beautiful, it is grace-giving. And so regardless of what our uh, experience is here in this world with our earthly fathers, there is a great good news, a great gospel in the heart at which is just the love of a father. So when we come to this section in 1 John, what we've got to know and see and understand is, is that the scriptures have this story to tell us. What we discover this morning is, is that spiritual children see, know, and act like their spiritual father. Spiritual children see know, and then act like their spiritual fathers. And we're going to see these words actually come up in the scriptures this morning, the seeing and the knowing and the acting out. We weren't able to cover uh, this uh, from last week. We actually had verses uh, 26, uh, I'm sorry, 28 and 29 as a part of last week's sermon, but we weren't even able to get to the good stuff that was in them. And so I just want to use that by way of context this morning. Verse 28 says this, You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There's a birth born of him. If you scroll down to uh, uh, verse 9, we see that no one that is born of God makes a practice of sinning because he has been born of God. There's something about being born to God that matters in this passage. You actually get these uh, bookends, as it were, to know and understand something about what it is to be born of God. That's the context. And what we discover here is that to be born of God uh, is to be a child of God. God has children, not uh, humans just in general. There are lots of faiths that refer to everybody, all humans, as being sons of God. But this has a more particular meaning. It means someone who has been reborn, someone who has faith, someone who is born of God him. That's what it says. Someone who looks like him, not physically, but spiritually speaking, they resemble who he is. They are different. They are set apart. They are holy. They are born of God. That's the context that we're talking about this morning, our children. And what we need to do first is see. We need to see the Father. We need to see his love. Verse 1, it says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children. It says, see, see with your eyes what kind of love God has given to us that we should be called children. So what do you do to see God? What do we look at? What do you see whenever you look at God? You, you might see a God that is uh, uh, judgmental, uh, someone who, uh, who, who's very judgy, and, or, or maybe yours is that uh, he's more aloof. He's standing apart from you. You don't feel like he's very caring of you. What do you get when you look at God? Is he critical of you? When you think about God in heaven, God the Father, what is your initial reaction? Is he someone that is, that is near, that is uh, angry, that is uh, hurtful, that is unkind, or is it something else? What kind of father is he? What do you see when you look at him? What we see here is that when we look at God's heart, 
When we look at the gospel, we see with our eyes the kind of love that he has given to us and that he called us children, and so we are. That's how definite it is this morning. Read verse 1 again with me and just relish it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. God's love for us compelled him to make us his children in some kind of uh, uh, ambiguous way or in a definite way. In a definite way. It's not just that God calls us children because he thought that it might be a good idea. He makes us his children. So for many of us, we think about it and we kind of skate past these words because we're so familiar with calling God the God the Father, and we're so familiar with being called sons and daughters that we forget that this is a reality. It has definition. John is spending a great deal of time to tell us what he received from Jesus, and that is that you are a son. You are a daughter of a father. And it wasn't just that you were made a son and daughter, that you were picked up out of some squalor and that you were tucked away in some like remote part of his huge mansion, that he doesn't care for you at all. He just thought it might be a good idea to like bring you out of sin and sorrow and guilt and shame and just tuck you away somewhere. It says that he was compelled by his love. For, for some of us this morning, that's what we need to hear more than anything else is that you are a son or daughter if you are in Jesus Christ and that the reason why you are, the sole reason is because God the Father loves. He loves you. Man, what a magnificent testimony. And, and, and I just love the way that John says this here. You are a son or daughter. And, and what love he has that he would call you a son of daughter. And when he calls you that, you just are. And so you are. It's just this definition in and around the love of God that sweeps us up into a fatherly embrace. God's love for us compelled him to make us his children. Now, when we were born, all of us were born with a different seed. This passage is going to talk about the seed of the Spirit. It's going to be talking about the seed that we receive that actually makes us his sons and daughters. But we were born with a different kind of seed. We find out in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, when Adam and Eve begin having children, that there is a seed of sin that is in us. It's called the seed of Adam. And that every person in this room, every person that exists on this earth that has existed before us, that will exist after us, was born of man and woman. And the seed of Adam literally goes through the generations implanting sin in the hearts of human beings. Whose child are you? Who is your federal head, as it were? Who is your patriarch when you are born? It is not merely whoever you call dad. It's Adam. He gives you the seed of sin, and this is a huge problem. Why? Because the seed of sin will ultimately result in your death. That's what that seed does. When the seed of sin is planted in you, it results in death, and not just a, uh, a physical death, a forever death. If you are only in Adam, if Adam is your only federal head, if you have no other fa uh, father apart from him, we will find out here in just one moment. This is a grave thing, but verse 9, look at it with me. 
it says this, God's seed abides in you and you are born in God. Born in God. There is a rebirth. Jesus shows up on the scene in the middle of history and he says, you need to be born again. And everybody goes, how can I enter my mother's womb again? How could I possibly be born a second time? And what he's saying to us is that there is a spiritual rebirth, one that takes you from the dominion of darkness, one that takes you from that place of sin underneath the seed of Adam, underneath his federal headship, and actually moves you into a completely different kind of family, a forever family. And when you're put into that forever family, you now have a new seed. You have this seed that abides in you, God's seed, and it causes you to be born again, to be reborn. And this is the beauty of the gospel we find in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption. So you no longer are a slave to fear, you're a child of God. This is the song that we sing in our hearts. I woke up with it in my heart this morning, just singing it out, that we are no longer slaves to fear. That seed in me does not result in fear and death anymore. Rather, I am a child of God. I have the Spirit of God that has adopted me by whom I can cry, Abba, Father. Galatians goes on to reinforce this point. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born of man, Born of Adam, born under his federal headship, born with his seed in him? No, no, no. Born of a woman, sinless. Galatians says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, to redeem. That's the purpose of his son, that we might receive adoption. Ephesians, 5, uh, Ephesians 1 5 says this In love, he predestined us. Predestined us for what? A lot of us get hung up on that word and we go, I don't like that word. What did we get predestined for? Predestined for adoption. What sweet truth that is that God can predestine us for adoption. Adoption to whom? Adoption to what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And what John is saying is saying, See, Do you see the love of God that he uses to make you a son or daughter in his forever family? This is the essence of the gospel. It's an adoption story. You were adopted. If you are in Christ, these verses say, you have been adopted. See the love of the Father, our gracious, redeeming, and loving adoptive Father. That's the kind of love that God has for you. That's the kind of love that God has for you. I mean you. God loves you. And his love compels you to bring you in as a son or daughter. What a great grace we get to see this morning in all of this. And this is one of the reasons why I just want to encourage you. Not all of us in this room ought to adopt. It's a very difficult thing. This is a a very difficult thing to do. It's maybe one of the most selfless things that you can do, one of the most selfless things that a person could do. But those who have been adopted into a forever family, I'm convinced, ought to consider adoption. And and some of you are. Some of you are fostering. Some of you are uh, considering adoption. Why? Not just because you thought it was a good idea, not because you're trying to earn your way into heaven. That's not how it works but because you know that the love of the Father compelled him to adopt you into a forever family. So how can you not at least give some consideration of bringing a child into your family? 
It's a beautiful thing. Adoption is a beautiful thing. When we see it, when we see it here in this church, we recognize how integral it is with the gospel. We ought to consider it. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children. When? Now. Beloved, we are God's children now. We shall be like him because we have seen him as he is. So when do we become children? When we become children now. When will we be like him? Well, the verses actually say we're not yet. We don't know. We haven't seen it yet. But when will that happen? It will happen when we see him. When will you be exactly like your father? When you see him. That's the, that's the great grace here is that we've been brought into this kingdom, but that full revelation of what it is to be adopted in his family is not completely revealed at this time. And John is just marveling in that. What is it going to be like? What is it going to look like? How am I going to resemble my father? You remember earlier I was talking about how I resemble my father. I literally look like my dad. My kids look like me. They do things that I do. There is all of, the, all of these ways that we need to be becoming more and more like the father. Are we already there yet? Well, it says now. You're already a child. Has it been fully revealed in you? No, not until you see him. Not until you see him. Why? Because spiritual sons and daughters first have to see the love of the Father. They have to see the love of their spiritual Father. When we are God's children, when are we God's children? Now. But that has not been fully revealed. But one day we will see him and we will be like him. When will we see him? When are we going to be with him at his appearing? This is all of, these langu- all of this language is sensory language about seeing him. And at his appearing, then we, we, we will be fully like him. We'll be able to mimic him because we don't just see him in the pages of scripture. What a grace. But we will see him plainly, right in front of our very eyes, our redeemed eyes. We will see him and we will become more and more like him. But what does it mean to be like him? Maybe we see him, but what does it mean to actually be like him? What will that family resemblance look like? Will it be physical? You bet it'll be physical. When we are fully redeemed, when our bodies are fully redeemed, when we see him at his appearing, your body will be more like God. How? I have no idea. I mean, it tells us you're going to have a fully redeemed body and it's going to be great. It's going to be glorious and you're going to look more than you ever could have here on this earth prior to the full redemption, more like your father. What a day is coming. More like him in your thought patterns, in your mind, God, I, I hope so, I know so. Why? Because I will be fully redeemed. My mind will be completely renewed this way that Romans talks about. Physically, mind, our desires will be more like him. We will be true spiritual children made more conformed holy, completely in his image. That's what this passage is trying to plead with us to believe. But what will that family resemblance look like? What does John want for us to get? First, we see the father. Next, we need to know what he is like. Verse three, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What do we learn about our father? Right here in this verse, what what does he look like? He's pure. He's holy. He's righteous. 
We see that, and you might go, I don't know, that's just one verse. Verse 28, little children, abide in him, persevere in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Who's a little unconfident about the way that they appear, about the way that they look? Who's a little unconfident about the way that they feel and being able to like share those emotions and be vulnerable? Who here has thoughts in their mind that they're not all altogether happy about, that they wish were not there? I mean, that's all of us, right? All of us have these uh, insufficiencies that are in us that cause insecurities in us, but here we actually see that we will be pure just as he is pure, that we can know him. And what does that look like? We can know that he is righteous. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence if you know that he is righteous, if you know that he is righteous. First we see, then we know. What do we know? We know that he is righteous. Verse seven, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices righteous, that word practice, we're going to be seeing it appear a few times here. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But not only is he righteous, he also wants his children to be righteous. Not only on the outside, but inwardly righteous. How do we know? Verse 5 tells us, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. What is this all about? Why is John going through such great lengths to tell us about the righteousness, the holiness of God? Why is he telling us about this? It's because we're supposed to also look like him. So first we see, then we know that he is righteous. What should that righteousness, uh, that righteousness that we see and that we know in the Father produce in us? A desire to be righteous. How can we be righteous? He appeared, and we can know it. Why did he appear? In order to take away sins. Why would we trust him to take away sins? How can we know that he has the ability to take away sins? Because in him there is no sin. Who is it talking about here? Who is it that's doing the appearing? It's Jesus Christ. It's not just that the Father is righteous. It's that he wanted righteous children. And in order to do that, he has to sweep away that sin that seed of Adam, he has to replace it with the, spe- uh, with the seed of God, with this Holy Spirit that produces righteousness, that produces uh, father-likeness in us. That's what we need to know. We need to know that Jesus is the one that is coming and actually producing this in us. So he sent his righteous son. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish all ungodliness This is my covenant. What is the covenant? That I take away their sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. Do you know it? But when Christ offered for all time, how long? For all time, a single sacrifice for sin. By a single offering, he perfected for how long? All time, those who are being sanctified. Who is it that produces righteousness in us? It's Jesus Christ. How does he do it? By being the blood sacrifice, by making blood sacrifice of goats and bulls like in the Old Testament that was revealing that there needed to be a sacrifice made for you. No, that wouldn't have lasted for all time. 
What we need is an all-time sacrifice, one sacrifice for the many that produces righteousness in you, and that's what Jesus came to do. What is our spiritual father like? He is holy. How do you know what he is like? Well, we read here that he is holy. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? You have to see and to know Jesus, the righteous. See the Father's love. Know his righteousness in Jesus Christ. But then we've got to ask the question, how then ought we to live? What should our lives look like? Should we go on sinning? That's the, that's the question that Paul asked. Should we go on sinning now that we've received righteousness in Christ? By no means. There is actually something that results in all of this, and John is going to spend a lot of time telling us what this ought to look like in our lives, and what he tells us is that you need to act like your father. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known. You wonder where I got my thesis for this morning? There it is. It's right there in the text. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known him. How can John say something like this? How can he say something like this? This is one of those things that we've come up against over the last few weeks where John's got some hard things to say to us. He has all of these if-then statements. If you go on sinning, then you can't have the Father's righteousness in you. There's no way. If you're a liar, you're not a part of this kingdom. He's got a lot of really difficult things to say, and this one might be, for me, one of the most cutting Why? Because he's telling me that if I don't act like my father, then I'm probably not his son. And it causes some degree of introspection, some degree of a righteous examination of my heart. How can John say it? Verse 4, because sin is lawlessness. How can John say this hard thing? It's because sin in you is lawlessness. If you go on sinning, what are, you, uh, what are you doing? This is kind of a strange thing for him to be calling it, that it's just lawlessness. What is, what is he saying? Ultimately, what he's saying is, is that if you go on sinning, it's not like you're underneath the authority or headship of your father, your heavenly father. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're saying that you're living in his house, but you're not abiding by his rules. And he's just pressing you to be honest about it. He wants you to be honest about where your heart is. He wants you to examine your heart and to see if there is sin, and if there is sin, to be real about the implications of it. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen or known him. How can John say that? Because sin is lawlessness. It's saying, I'm God. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide which house I'm living in. I decide which kind of things I'm doing with my money. I decide what kind of lies I'm telling. I decide what kinds of things my heart wants. Sin is lawlessness. And there's no like quibbling about it. John isn't like suggesting it. He's not like putting it out there like breadcrumbs on the water, seeing if uh, how you react as they pass by. That's not what he's doing. He's just saying it. He's saying sin is lawlessness. For those of us who go on sinning as if we are doing nothing, it's trying to be a law for ourselves. It's trying to create something for ourselves. It's ultimately trying to put us in the place of God, saying what is or is not right. If you have seen and know God, 
then you can't do whatever you want. That's what John's saying here. If you've seen and you if you've seen the love of God, if you know his righteousness, you cannot just do whatever you darn well please. Ultimately, that's the message that John has for us. But this isn't about authority. It's not, it's not as much about authority. Of course, yes, God, if he is the father, if he's the one, if he is the ruler of the household, it's his rules. It's his rules in his house. But I don't get that that's exactly what John is on about. Remember, because what he's telling us is that we need to see the Father's love and to remember what we know about God's righteous rescuer. He's not just making a power play here. He's not just saying, listen, if you go on sinning, you are not a son or daughter of God because God has authority over you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because if you've experienced, if you've seen, if you've tasted, if you know the love of God and you know of his righteousness, you can't remain unchanged. You can't continue to love the same things that you love. There has to be something in you that changes. If you have seen the loving invitation of God written to his sons and daughters to beckon them into his family and notice that that letter, that loving invitation was written in the blood of Jesus, if you know of his righteousness, if you know of his holiness, then you cannot go on sinning as if nothing happened. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. I want to say it to you this morning, little children. Little children of God, let nobody deceive you. You cannot go on sinning. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot say, I love God and I see his love, but I'll do whatever I want. You can't do that. John's not allowing for that. His apostolic teaching is not allowing for that. Jesus has not allowed for that. The Holy Spirit who is speaking in and through the scriptures is not allowing for that. You can't just do whatever you want. If you're living in God's loving household, if you know of his perfection and his righteous standard, you cannot go on sinning. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Look like the Father. Are you looking like the Father? Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. It's not who he is anymore. He's been born of God. He's been made a son or daughter. By this, by this, it is evident who are the children of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. One side note here real quick. If you've come in here this morning and you've heard me say, If you sin, if you ever sin, you are not a son or daughter of God. I just want you to know, that's not what this passage means. That's not what John is saying. John has already said, if you claim to have no sin, you're a liar. That's what he's already told us in this book. So that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about practicing sinning. He he begins to start using this word in terms of what you are practicing. What are you practicing? What are you wanting? What are you repeating? What are your habits? What are you going to? He's not saying... If it's ever sin, if it's ever one sin, if it's ever one thing, then you can't be a child of God. Because then, who could be a son or daughter of God? Only one. Only one, and his name is Jesus. But Jesus came to destroy the destroyer. That's what we read here in this passage. So it can't be that. 
what it's got to be referring to is just unrepentant sin. It's that sin that you do and you keep on doing and there's no remorse, there's no trying to turn away from it, there's no, uh, uh, there's no confession, there's no, uh, there's no shame or guilt over it that you then hand to Jesus. That's what it's saying. It's saying you cannot be a son or daughter of God and be in constant, continual, unrepentant sin. You can't say I'm living in the house, but I'll do whatever I want. I'll keep on doing the things that displease the head of the household. You can't do that. Why? Because no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, the Holy Spirit, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born. He has been reborn as a son or daughter of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. By this, it is evident. It says this. There is evidence for whether or not you are a son or daughter or whether or not you are not. Okay? We get some, in some sense, we get a spiritual paternity test. Don't think Jerry Springer. Think, I want to know. I want to know, am I a son or daughter of God? Think, I, I want to know who is my father? Who is my dad? Well, he says quite clearly, the way that you know. It says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God. Do you look like him? Do you see his love? Does that seed abide in you? Do you keep on in unrepentant sin, not caring at all about pleasing your father? You get a paternity test. Do you want evidence that you are born of him, that you are a child of God? I've got a question for you. John has a question for you. The Holy Spirit has a question for you. Do you practice sin? Do you make habit of it? Is it perpetual? Do you want it more than you want to please God? Do you go on sinning? John has a test for you. We're going to uh, conclude in a strange place this morning. And it's not because I thought it was a good idea. It's because it's literally where the text this morning ends for us. It talks about this sonship being a child, and it doesn't just talk about God the Father, right? Let's look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, who, and this is very important, who has been sinning from the beginning. Whoever makes a practice, whoever is uh, perpetually unrepentant of sin has a dad. His name is the devil. Verse 10, by this it is evident. We already read the first part of this, but we didn't read the second part. By this it is evident who are the children of the devil, whoever does not practice righteousness and those who have no love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is very interesting to me. The first like 25 times that I read this passage, I did not get this. It just seemed like he tacked that on at the end. Whoever doesn't love his brother. And it's like, oh, well, he's going to start talking about. No, he's been talking about that the whole time. He's been saying, see the love of the father. See how much he loves you. How do you see it? How can you get it in your glimpse? How can you understand? How can you behold it? You see the love of the father and that he calls you a child and it was so. So if you have another dad, if you have another dad and his name is Satan, you're not going to love the sons and daughters, right? This is integral to the rest of the passage. We get a second paternity test. God is righteous, but Satan has been sinning from the beginning. God loves, but the devil deceives. Verse 8. 
the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. God destroys the devil. God sent his righteous son to destroy the destroyer. And here's what you need to know, beloved. You need to know this. If you're one of the sons of Satan, if you're one of the sinning sons of Satan, you're going to be part of that destruction. It's not comfortable. It's not one of those things that we like to talk about. Uh, This world has created categories for sermons like this, where you focus on sin and you focus on wrath and you focus on destruction. But here it is, and we've got to deal with it. It's not some preacher thinking that this was a good idea. It's God deciding to give you a paternity test. Who's your daddy? That's what he's asking you. It might be silly to think of it that way, but I want you to think about it all week. Are you practicing sin or are you practicing righteousness? Are you living in God's holy household or are you living apart from God as an object of wrath, as an object set apart for destruction? Who is your father? The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. God destroys devils. God's love, though, makes sons and daughters of righteousness, but God's righteousness and his wrath will destroy devils. So I've got the question for you this morning. Who is your daddy? Is it the father of lights and love, or is it the father of lies and lawlessness? The litmus test, the test that you have to walk out of here this morning is what do you practice? I'm going to leave that for you to go and to discuss. If you want to talk about that with somebody, if you want more discernment, if you're like, I I struggle, I struggle with assurance, I just need somebody to to help come alongside of me and, and discern these things, I'm here. I can't look into your heart, but I can take a look at the pages of Scripture, I can counsel, I can pastor you towards discerning, are you a son of God the Father or are you a son of the devil? I hope God gives you some sort of clarity that there might be new life in those who do not have life presently, who live in destruction, who live in lawlessness. I hope that you can see it. Not see it so that you can revel in it or, uh, uh, or understand more of the misery that is in sin, but so that you can turn and, and live in a forever household with God the Father who loves you and who gave his only son to die for you. For those of us, though, who are living in the house, but have lacked confidence, I want you to have confidence. I want for you to see the good work of a loving father in you. I want you to enjoy the love that he says because he calls you a child, and you are. And I want you to have that kind of confidence and assurance. Come talk with me. Come talk with Andrew. Talk with your discipleship group leader. Don't leave here this morning if you need to have that conversation. I'll be standing up at the front. Let's pray. God and Father, you are a father of love. Your love compels you to make sons and daughters of us. What a glorious truth that is. You are an adoptive father. You don't stick us on the edge of your kingdom. You invite us to your table. So that's where we're headed this morning, Father. I pray that you would give great assurance to those who are in Christ Jesus and that they would know and rejoice and be filled with joy at the coming to your table. Lord, that they would see the elements here of the costliness of the adoption that they have already had because of your love. Your love is poured out on us. 
Lord, for those who do not know you, Lord, would you give them clarity and understanding? Would you allow for them to uh, turn away from the practice of sin and enter into a uh, righteous relationship with you? Father, I pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.